And really the best thing that you can do is focus on gathering all the information that you can and standing on the right side of history with corrective action. There's no shame in acknowledging and coming up with a resolution or some sort of action that aims to repair. Welcome to Mitten Money, delivering insights from Michigan-based business leaders, big and small. William Zank, host of Mitten Money at TriStar Trust, loves nothing more than creating this masterclass so that you can get insight to guide your leadership journey in just under 30 minutes. Subscribe today and connect with William at mittenmoney.com. What's going on, everyone? You're listening to another episode of Mitten Money. Let's face it, sometimes in business, bad things happen. We're all human and mistakes are only natural. When these sorts of things happen, it's crucial to control the narrative and to try and come up with a good response. How do you go about preparing for that though? And also, how would you craft a narrative with the clock ticking? To answer some of these questions, I'm happy to have on Arielle Patrick to cover these topics in this masterclass of an episode. She's currently the Chief Communications Officer for Ariel Investments. Prior to joining Ariel, she worked for Edelman, which is the world's largest communications consulting firm. We discuss how a firm should go about scenario planning, how organizations can develop communications for crisis management, and the importance of relationship building within one's career. So welcome, Ariel, to Mint Money. So Ariel, when you graduated from Princeton, I can imagine that you had the opportunity to join any industry that you wanted. Now, what made you initially interested in corporate communications? And then how the heck did you end up joining Ariel? Gosh, well, first of all, thank you for having me. I hope that my answer isn't way too long. But the best way I would describe it is that I was raised by a storyteller. My father's a journalist, and I was always very passionate about storytelling. Ever since I was a little girl, I used to write plays during holidays, and I used to force my family to play each part. Then I was an amateur poet in high school, ended up actually studying creative writing as my minor undergrad when I went to Princeton. So really just the idea of telling stories was always top of mind. I did do several internships in the journalism space, wanting to be exactly like my dad. I think my dream job originally was to be editor-in-chief of Newsweek, which as we know now is this thin. For those listening and can't see me, I'm indicating something very, very thin. So, you know, a lot has changed, right? A lot of things took place between 2008 and 2009, not only when the financial crisis was happening, but also when there was a rise in digital media, the Huffington Post, the Daily Beast, and magazines and traditional publications were folding one by one. And so my family actually helped me read the tea leaves and realize that the other side of storytelling was communications. And there was an opportunity to use my writing gift, but with more job security and more financial upside. So I went straight into consulting and found myself working on many clients, but many, many of them were financial services institutions, became more curious about risk and corporate strategy and moved over to crisis management, but still found myself drawn by the numbers. I don't know what it is about finance, but it is something that I've just become very passionate about. And so when I was on the crisis side, I still focused on financially material matters such as mergers and acquisitions or bankruptcy restructuring or earnings misses or other material matters. And that grew into just many opportunities for me. And how I ended up at Ariel is a whole other story. 
it really speaks to the power of relationship building. And I like to use relationship building as the term instead of networking. I don't really network. I don't enter relationships with any agenda or wanting something from someone. I just simply get to know them. But I had the pleasure of getting to know Melody Hobson when I was earlier in my career, maybe about eight or nine years ago. And we just stayed in touch and she saw me rise on the consulting side. I had just been promoted to executive vice president at Edelman when she called asking for some of my advice about the firm's brand and some new initiative she was working on, namely our recently closed private equity fund. And just through nurturing that relationship, it came to be that it made sense for me to come over. So always good to add value in relationships and make it a two-way street rather than gathering mentors and networking for the sake of seeking something from people. Much longer term, bigger opportunities can come your way by doing it the way I've found to be successful. That's special. And that's pretty good advice on the end there. And so talking specifically now about crisis management, when you talk about crisis management, it can be trying times for any organization. Trying to develop a clear and concise message must be pretty challenging. And so as a situation unfolds, what are some of the first things that you try and do or that someone should try and do to diagnose an issue? I would start with the term humility. I do think that a lot of institutions approach crisis management from a defensive place. So they focus more on the outcome or what they're most afraid of or preventing that rather than accepting the fact that humans and by nature of that institutions are imperfect. People will make mistakes. And really the best thing that you can do is focus on gathering all the information that you can and standing on the right side of history with corrective action. There's no shame in acknowledging and coming up with a resolution or some sort of action that aims to repair. In my experience where institutions fail the most is focusing on what it looks like or trying to manipulate what an audience will think about your institution rather than just focusing on really the truth. So to me, humility is key to that, knowing we are imperfect, there might be something here, let's get as much detail as we can, show the audience that we are pursuing an extremely rigorous process to get to the bottom of it. And when you address a crisis, it's important that you don't just have a statement or some sort of reaction, it's that you also unveil some sort of initiative or some sort of corrective action that you're able to share that makes the institution or the community impacted a better place. Without that, they're just empty statements and words on a page. So when I was on the consulting side, I always pressured my clients to think, well, what are we going to do about this? Until we are doing something, there's no need to say something. So focusing less on optics and more on doing what's right. That is what creates a compelling message. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm sure it relates a little bit to scenario planning. And so talking specifically about that, what's the typical death that someone should look into or try and prepare for? Now, I'm sure this could be specific to any company or could it possibly be a broad list of things that a company should be prepared for? I love that question because it is very closely tied to what I was just talking about, which is humility. So understanding that humans and by nature of that institutions are imperfect should tell you that every institution needs to have an incredibly robust scenario plan. There is no scenario that is impossible for your organization. 
you are equally vulnerable as anyone else to a Me Too issue or a cyber breach or a code of conduct breach in some capacity or anything else. And so what is most effective is having a marketing and communications organization that has very close relationships with and also a seat at the table to partner with the CEO, CFO, general counsel, outside counsel, CTO, and anyone else to develop a really robust playbook. And the reason that partnership is required, and I see this happen all the time, is that when I see scenario plans from companies, what's missing is the actual business action that accompanies the statement. So having a scenario plan that says, here's what we would say if this happens, here's what we would say externally if that happens, that doesn't help you because it's not rooted in what are we doing? And then by nature of that, depending on what we do, what will we say? So I'm actually far less concerned about the holding statement. Anyone can draft a holding statement within two minutes notice, but having the scenario plan that tells you what your organization will do and how it will react is the first step. I always try to tell people that the best communication strategies, whether they be crisis or proactive, are born from the inside out. So no proactive communication strategy should be led by anything other than business objectives. Same thing with crisis. Statements should not be thing driving the bus or how you want people to react. It should be driven in what is actually taking place and what are we doing about it. Sure. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And so something that we touched upon earlier was a little bit about networking, which in doing research for this podcast, I've seen on multiple podcasts, Ariel, that you've been featured and talked about the importance of networking while you're young to try and build out your professional network. And so for the people listening in, what tips would you give for someone to start out with this? Because there's a laundry list of companies out there and it's very hard to go narrow down that list or that list of people that you want to go relationship build rather than using term networking, for instance. Thank you for saying that. I don't know what it is about the word networking, but it just seems so transactional. It's never been something that's been attractive to me. But Compelling relationship building is absolutely critical to being successful in your career. And the best way to start is to think about where you can add value rather than what value they can bring to you. So often I would make sure, especially when I was earlier in my career, that I had at least one thing in common with someone before reaching out cold, whether it be an alma mater or a mutual connection or a passion, a hobby, something that's a good conversation starter so that you're adding to that person's life in some way in the same way that they add to yours. Pointing out that connection early in your outreach is really important so that they understand why you felt that there was synergy between the two of you. And then maintaining that relationship once it begins is actually where the magic happens. So when I was younger, I used to have a newsletter that I used to send out to my mentors or just connections that I built that had the top headlines and things like industry trends that I was seeing from my seat as a consultant that I thought would be interesting to them. So sometimes it was as simple as a oh, quick roundup of the hottest stories in the industry, or sometimes it was a more personal note to that person saying, I thought you would find this interesting or FYI. And you would be surprised how many people would say things like, wow, I actually hadn't seen that or hearing your take really added something new or asking a question, what are you seeing or what are your higher ups doing with clients in this area? Is there anyone I can talk to? So pushing myself to do that weekly newsletter or touch point with everyone was important. Of course, you don't want to be annoying. So you have to ensure that those relationships are set up to receive that kind of communication. But in some cases, it was monthly for some people, or in some cases, it was quarterly. But just finding ways to add 
what little I knew to their orbit was very important. And you're never too young to start because there's always an experience that you're having someone else doesn't have access to and could benefit from. No, that's a really good response. And, you know, just thinking about that, that really ties into, you know, what I was going to mention next is I could see that the passions probably led into helping assist with so many of these different organizations that I've read that you've helped and assist with, whether it's the Yellowstone Fever, which relates to uh, the Yellowstone National Parks, if I read that correctly, a New York-based charter school and the Frick Collection and so many more. And so did all these, you know, maybe you, you got started with one organization and then it was kind of a snowball after that, or when you were going out, did these just happen happenstance for you that you got involved with them? Sure. So the boards that I sit on now were all inbound inquiries, but really how it came up was actually through, I just did a lot of free volunteer work when I was younger. I used to throw benefits for many organizations, mainly because what I had access to was a large group of friends and a Rolodex that could and a hungry and eager group of young budding philanthropists who wanted to get involved with different issues. So sometimes I would just reach out to organizations and say, hey, I'm open to throwing a party for you, or here's an idea, or I would join a committee. But I spent a lot of time doing that. And then through that, I guess I just organically gained this reputation as someone who was skilled at fundraising. And of course, now that I'm in a seat where I'm known as a business strategist, those two things married together have made me an attractive board member. But in the case of Yellowstone Forever, which is the official nonprofit partner and endowment for Yellowstone National Park, the first national park actually in the world, that was one where a relationship was built just by being helpful. I had gotten a call, I think it was six or seven years ago now from a current board member asking for support as they were looking at the New York market for their first benefit in the East Coast, simply because she had gotten my name from a mutual friend who had attended my other events for other organizations. And when she told me what it was for, I offered to help her and I co-chaired for five straight years before they then came to me and said, would you be interested in possibly joining the steering committee for the young patrons group? I gave a lot of, donated a lot of time to that. And then from there became a member of the governing board. And now I'm on the finance and audit committee, as well as the investment subcommittee, focusing on how we're managing our assets, through our endowment. So Paying it forward really is the best way to start. I didn't really anticipate proactively reaching out to anyone asking to be on boards. Being on boards is is a really large responsibility and you don't want to do it in a half-baked way. So you need to make sure that you have the bandwidth and really the energy and commitment for the organization and its cause. Focusing on it as a resume builder doesn't really end well for anybody. You just have to really come with the passion and the skill set. So if anyone's looking to join boards, I would just focus first on where they are in their life cycle and if your particular skill set is actually needed at the table and what value you can bring and maybe start your relationship with the organization by paying it forward and giving your time, donating your time just to ideate or help with fundraising and then see where it goes from there. Yeah, thanks for touching on that. It's really intriguing, you know, to hear anyone's story, but especially your own story, how things serendipitously happen throughout your career and like what you mentioned, all those were inbound inquiries. And so that's really intriguing. And so something really interesting that I also saw that you were a part of was this big rebranding that Aerial Investments has gone through now that the firm is celebrating its 40th anniversary, which is crazy to hear. You know, I know that a lot of other investment firms have not only been around for 10 or 15, let alone 40 years. And so in doing this 40th year anniversary, I saw that the firm motto was updated from slow and steady wins the race to active patience. And so this must have been pretty challenging as you look forward that 40th year anniversary. 
to make this type of an undertaking or to undertake that. And so what was this whole, I know it's pretty complicated, but what was the whole thought process behind that rebranding? Sure. So if you were to look at Ariel's old brand, while beautiful, we definitely didn't stand out from the rest of Wall Street. If you were to pull up the websites of some of the big banks, so call it Goldman, JP Morgan, Charles Schwab. So I'm talking not only banks, but financial institutions. What do they all have in common is blue and white as their color scheme. We were yet another institution with blue and white letterhead, blue and white logo. It's a very, I would say, 1980s to early 2000s vibe for the financial industry. For some reason, blue and white conjures security and professionalism and institutionalism. We at Ariel, though, though we are institutional and though we are high quality and though we are relentlessly focused on protecting our clients' capital, we don't look like any other firm on Wall Street. We are almost 99% owned by employees. Our employee base is probably the most diverse on Wall Street. We are Black-owned and female-owned. Diversity isn't really a goal for us. It's just literally how we exist. And for that reason, when we thought about refreshing our look and feel, we first wanted to think about what we represent and also ensure that the rebrand reflected where the firm's is going. So, you know, we were started in 1983 as the nation's first Black-owned mutual fund company. Today, we are a large diversified asset management firm with 123, I believe that's the right number, employees, offices in New York, two offices in New York, San Francisco, Sydney. We're not just Chicago-based anymore, although that, of course, remains our beloved headquarters. As we have shifted and added more products and expanded our reach, we just weren't seeing peers that looked like us because we know that we don't look like anyone else. And so we engaged an incredible brand firm called 2 by 4 to help us think through and really do some stakeholder listening to understand how we were perceived. And we found the same thing. We don't have a direct competitor. What we found was special about Ariel was the people who make its mission possible. So our teammates, we are intentional. We call our employees teammates because they are all equal. We don't like terms like staff or things like that. And our clients. So what you'll see is that the rebrand is a very contemporary feel, black and orange, not only because orange is both Melody and John's favorite color, but it's also mine. I'm also a Princetonian. So all three of us ended up <laughs> working on this, which is quite fun. You'll see on our website, the iconography is really rooted in large scale black and white imagery of our people and the places that we serve. That's intentional because we are the people that make up our organization or the people that we serve. As it relates to active patients versus slow and steady wins the race, Aesop's tortoise in that fable remains our mascot. We love the tortoise because he signifies the importance of thinking long-term, looking out over the horizon and patiently, but also selectively picking your moments to attack. But we found that slow and steady wins the race perhaps conjured stasis. You know, we're not static. We are always proactively seeking value for our stakeholders, always looking for ways to support those who entrust us with their financial futures. So for some reason, active patients for us conjured the urgency that is required to actively do research the way that we do, which is really a relentless process, even though the outcome or the turnover in our portfolio may not reflect that day in and day out. And yeah, I would just say that the rebrand was a once in a lifetime opportunity for me. It was an honor to support Melody and the team. 
in helping this come to life. Also had you know another great vendor in Brunswick Group who helped us with the website and many, many other supporters who helped us bring this to life across our client materials, our signage in our offices. Every place we exist looks a little bit different today and more contemporary and engaging and human. I think humanity is really what the goal was. And so let me know what you think after you take a look, but it has been quite a wild ride. Well, thank you for going into such depth with that. That was really intriguing and kind of a little mini lesson on rebranding. And so that was really cool. And so now moving along to my favorite part of the conversation, our lightning round of questions. So Arielle, what would you say is your most important daily habit? Exercise. I work out every single day at 5 a.m. And if I don't get my workout in, it's a slightly less exciting and fulfilling day. That's interesting. And so while I think I may know the answer to your next question here, what's your favorite TV or streaming show that you're currently watching or have recently? I do adore Ted Lasso. I'm waiting for that to come back. I did enjoy this Netflix movie called You People that was by Jonah Hill. I thought that was really good. And I'm going to admit my guilty pleasure on the weekends when I have absolutely nothing to do and want to escape is The Real Housewives of pretty much any city that's available. I have to blame my friend Kelly for that. She sucked me into the darkness. It's definitely good to have your options in that one guilty-free show as well. And so moving along to the last question, Arielle, if you could be remembered for just one thing, what would it be? Being a connector and being generous with my Rolodex, it's something that is really important to me. So my goal is to be the kind of person where if someone calls me from any edge of the earth and needs a connection to save a life or change the course of their lives, I can make that happen. Being one call away from anyone who is a decision maker is really important to me. And using that power to help others is really important to me. So like I said, I think the thread here is relationship building, but using it for good. Absolutely. And so for those people who want to learn more about yourself or aerial investments, what are some good resources for the listeners out there? Of course, arielinvestments.com, as well as our new private equity business website, arielalternatives.com. And I'm on LinkedIn, Ariel Patrick, A-R-I-E-L-L-E-P-A-T-R-I-C-K. I think I'm the only one out there. So I'm an open book. Take a look. Wouldn't be too hard to find. And thank you again, everyone, for listening to another episode of Mid Money. Please don't forget to follow our podcast so you don't miss when new episodes drop. Thanks, Ariel. Thank you. You've been listening to Mitten Money, sponsored by TriStar Trust. Subscribe to the podcast and learn more about how William and the TriStar Trust team can guide your small business at tristartrust.com. Mitten Money.